Uh, my uncle Russ can be very difficult to understand. See, we call him Uncle Russ, but he is actually my grandmother's brother. And yes, that is a clarification that I graduated high school, just for the record, in case anybody doubted. Uh, but my Uncle Russ is a very unique, awesome individual. We love him to death. Uh, he is skinny. He uh, has one foot shorter than the other, so he has like these little insoles that he forgets and are funny to watch. Uh, but he's a great guy. We love being around Uncle Russ, but he can be difficult to understand. See, like a lot of guys of his generation, Uncle Russ started smoking at a young age. And by the time that he quit smoking, his voice had developed a little bit of a rasp to it. So as a young kid, I always struggled to understand what Uncle Russ was saying. And whenever he'd come up to me and we'd have a conversation, I'd have to look at my dad like, I know I was, uh, what's going on here, right? And, and he'd say, hey, uh, he asked, you know, what you been up to lately? And I'd know, oh, hey, we started basketball, things are going good. And he'd ask another question and I'd go, oh, what? <laughs> right? And dad would say, oh, he wants to know, how's basketball? Like, what's going on? Oh, we're playing the two. They want my defense, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Ohio State's going to win. We just go back and forth with all these stuff, right? And uh, so we'd have these conversations just slipping it in there, right? Yeah, there it is, just slipping it in. But I'd have these conversations with Uncle Russ, and I just couldn't understand him. I needed my dad to be an interpreter. Until one summer, when I hit an age that was not quite old enough to be by myself, but yet I was still too old for some of the programs in the community. So my parents decided I would spend my summer days hanging out with Uncle Russ, which, you know, wasn't bad. We had a lot of fun together. Uh, he, he let me bring my Nintendo 64 to his place and I'd play video games all day long. I'd go rollerblading around. Um, and then in the afternoons with a highlight because we would sit together in his family room with his little parakeet named Spike and we would eat black licorice and watch Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah, you guys have seen it. All right, good, okay, right? And it was a great time, and I learned three very valuable lessons during this time. Number one, I learned that there is nothing in the world that tastes as bad as black licorice, okay? Now, inevitably, somebody's going to come up to me and say, I love black licorice. I eat it all the time. That's okay. You're wrong, but that's okay. Like, it's terrible, all right? Number two, I learned that nobody, and I mean nobody, escapes Chuck Norris, Right? Because the eyes of the ranger are upon you, right? And number three, I finally learned my uncle's voice. After spending an entire summer together eating disgusting candy and watching Chuck Norris roundhouse kick people in the face, I finally learned, hanging out with Uncle Russ, what his voice sounded like. And I love talking to him. In fact, if you were to pick up the phone and talk to my Uncle Russ today, you would have to lean in and listen very carefully to what he says in order to understand him. Or you could hang out with me because I know his voice. I can interpret for him. I know what Uncle Russ's voice sounds like. And I love talking to him because he's incredibly funny and he is incredibly encouraging to be around. See, we're working through this series right now called Taste It. Taste it. And the whole goal that we're trying to do in this about three month period is to give you a thousand foot or bird's eye view of the entirety of Scripture, of all of the Bible. And what we're trying to do is paint with broad strokes a big picture of what is happening in the Bible. And the reason that we call it tasted is because we're just trying to give you a little bit of a taste of Scripture here on Sunday mornings, hoping that you will then 
like what it tastes like and dive in and gobble it up during the week. That you will dive in to your own studies. And at the beginning of this study, we gave this challenge and said, hey, we got 90 days. We are challenging you to read through the entirety of the Bible in this 90-day period. And some of you guys, man, you've been doing it. You've been reading like crazy. You've been into it. You've been gleaning and learning so much. And the good news is next week, we're going to have massage chairs lined up here just for you. I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. Okay, we're not doing that at all, right? Uh, for most of us, though, man, we we dug into it. We started reading, and then we got to all those things that had a lot of rules and a lot of names, and it was difficult, but we kept on going. And then life got busy, and we forgot a couple times, and then we got here this morning, and we remembered, oh, yeah, I was supposed to be doing that, and now Jake makes me feel bad, so I'm not making eye contact. And it's quite all right. I look, this is not our goal. We're not trying to shame you. We do not want you to feel bad. What we want to encourage you to do is, man, if you've stopped reading for a little bit, just jump in. Just jump back in, like read some of the Psalms, read the Proverbs, read about Jesus and Matthew, or you can do like today, and you can pick up where we're at here in uh, the books of Samuel and the books of Kings. And so what we want you to do is, man, don't be discouraged, just jump in. The goal is to read more scripture, read more of the Bible than maybe you ever have before, because we know that diving into the Word of God is life-changing. So a couple weeks ago, Chris was up here, and he was talking about uh, the idea of the laws and customs. We talked about Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and how it had all of these rules and all of these laws and customs that were really written for specific people at a specific time. And the reason for that is because this entire nation of Israel, these Hebrew people, had just escaped from slavery, and they had no idea how to be a nation. They had no idea how to get along with one another. And so they're bumping into one another, doing things wrong, messing up left and right. And so God put these guardrails in place for them. And he said, look, here's the line, here's the, here's the playground. You guys can play in this playground and have a really good time. But like most people, they decided this playground is great, but I want to play in the street. And so they left and got outside of those guardrails. And that's where Rick talked about the book of Judges and all those judges that came along last week. And that their goal and their purpose was to be God's voice and to help bring people back into those guardrails so that they didn't hurt themselves or other people. And they were to, to just listen and be together. But the problem that we saw was that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And it wasn't about God's rules, God's regulations, God's laws that were there to protect them, to keep them safe, to build them up, to give them the best that they could. But instead, they decided to do what was right in their own eyes. And it became a struggle, which leads us to today, where we're talking about First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And the incredible part of these chapters or these sections of Scripture is that they're part biography and also part history book, if you were to read them. And there's incredible stories about the life of guys like Samuel and David, but there's also a lot of history that comes into the history of the nation of Israel during this time. And what we see is that we're moving from a time period of judges into a time period of kings. A time period of kings. See, the Hebrew people looked around at every other nation, and they did what most like children do. They said, oh, they have fun things. I want that too, right? And they looked around, and they said, every other nation has a king. God, we need a king too. And God said, no, no, no. Like, you don't want a king. It's not going to work out well. No, no, no. Johnny has a king. I want a king. We all get a king. Ugh. And they pouted, right? And God said, fine. You know what? If that's what you want, you get a king. I will put a king in your life. You're not going to love it, but you're getting a king. And he's going to be my ambassador to all the people as long as he will trust and obey me alone. That the king would be God's ambassador as long as he chooses to trust and obey God 
alone. And not just the king, but God decided that he would send prophets as well during this time period, and that these prophets would be God's voice and his covenant watchdog to all the people and the king. So that when they were not trusting and obeying God alone, the prophet would show up and go, whoa, 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 (laughs) what are you doing? One God, this is the God we serve, come back, come back, come back. And prophets came again and again and again, as we'll see in the books of Samuel and the books of Kings, to try and bring the people back to the covenant that God had made with them. And to bring people back to what God had called them to be and called them to do. So a little more in depth, if we look at the books of First and Second Samuel, we see a few main characters, the first one being Samuel. That's who the book is written after. The, he was the first prophet anointed by God to all of the people. And that the first king that Samuel got to anoint was Saul, the very first king over Israel. And what the nation of Israel did is they looked around and they said, whoa, that tall, dark, and handsome guy, bam, he's our king. We like him. It's like selecting the bachelor to be the next king of Israel. It's like, That's him. He's good looking. He's tall. He's muscular. Woo! All right. right. He, he got the ladies vote or something. I don't know. But they decided he was the one. And so they anointed him to be king. And things started out really well, but he did not stay trusting and obeying God alone. So when he began to wander off, then God looked down and he said, hey, you know what? If Saul is not going to be my king, if Saul is not going to trust and obey me, then I'm going to raise up another king. And God anointed David to be the next king while Saul was still alive. And so there's this whole, whole thing happening, all these events that are occurring where they're establishing this new kingship throughout the land. And as you can imagine, when Saul is king and David is to be next in line for the king, Saul becomes a little bit jealous. He has some issues with that. And so they go through all of these battles, and we even see David versus Goliath, which if you've grown up in church or you watch Veggie Tales at any point in time, you've seen David versus Goliath. And if you haven't read that story since you were a little kid, read it again. There's some incredible stuff. It's a little more hairy, a little more gruesome than you probably remember on the Veggie Tales version, but it is definitely worth the read. And what we see after that, after David begins to pop up on scene, is the jealousy of Saul. And Saul actually begins to go after David. And he tries to kill David time and time again. And yet David remains faithful to God's plan and God's way of doing things throughout all of this. And in all of this time, we also see another relationship occur between David and Jonathan. And Jonathan is unique because he is Saul's son. He is the king's son. Now, most of us recognize if you are the king's son, when the king dies you become the next king. But God's anointed David to be the next king. Hmm, simple math, something's not working out here, right? So you would expect those two to bump heads all of the time, but it's not how it happens. In fact, David and Jonathan have an incredible friendship, an incredible relationship with one another. And the fact that Jonathan actually saves David's life. That's incredible. Like if David's out of the picture, Jonathan should be next. But instead, he decides to save David's life because of their friendship. It's an incredible, incredible event to read through. And in seeing all of these things happen, the most important thing that we can pick out of there is to see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That even though the kings of Saul and the kings of David both come to reign and do really well, they also make a lot of mistakes that ends their kingship. But in spite of all that, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives this covenant promise of a messianic king that will one day come and will reign on high from the line of David. That's incredibly important to know because if we jump into the New Testament, we recognize that that messianic king is Jesus. 
that all the way back in 2 Samuel, God is laying the foundation for the arrival of Jesus. And if we jump then into First and Second Kings, we see this is the story of all the kings that come after David. And one of the most famous of those, the last king of the United Nation, was Solomon. Solomon. And we think of Solomon as being a very successful and wise king. And in fact, he was. Now, when Solomon came to the throne, he actually came through in a very bloody, manipulative, political, assassination-y kind of way all throughout. That it wasn't necessarily a grand way that he came to the throne, but once he got to power, he asked God for wisdom, and God blessed him to be the wisest king. And Solomon's reign saw prosperity like none other. That other nations would come to Solomon for wisdom to try and glean from him so they could have the type of success that King Solomon had. But in all his wisdom, even Solomon didn't stay trusting and obeying God. But rather, as he married hundreds of other wives, he also took in these hundreds of other gods. And it began to deteriorate the relationship between the king and God. And that we even see on a political manner that as Solomon was prosperous, he built all these beautiful buildings, including an incredible temple to God. But in doing so, he taxed his people heavily and required heavy labor out of them for years upon years to the point when Solomon eventually died and his son comes to the throne. His son looks around and sees all the beautiful buildings and the taxes and, and the weary people. And he says, hey, I know my father weighed heavy upon you. And if you thought his burden was bad, just wait, I got more, right? And the people said, oh, no, we don't want that. Like, no, we are done with that. And so they rebelled, and this united kingdom splits into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judea and the kingdom of Israel, the north and southern kingdom. And the rest of the book of Kings is all about these two nations and the kings that rule them and the prophets that come along. And some kings were great. Most kings were not. Most kings did not trust and obey God to the point where God looks down and he says, I am done with that. I'm not, I'm done with this kingship and these nations being this way. And so what he does is he allows the nations of Assyria and Babylon to come in to overtake both these kingdoms and throw them into exile. And the book of Second, uh, Second Kings ends with a very hopeless, hopeless feeling of exile and enslavement again, for God's chosen people. In fact, the only hope that we get out of this entire section of Scripture is if we go back on 2 Samuel 7 and God's promise to send a messianic king to rule again one day. So this morning what I want to do is I just want to give you a little bit of taste of this passage, this section of Scripture with the hopes that you'll, you'll take in a part of it and you will go home and you will dive in to these sections and you will see God moving and you will see the kings, you will see the stories of the prophets and you will be encouraged in your own life. And so what I want to do is I want to start here in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Start you at the very beginning so when you go home you can pick up from here as well. Uh, we'll give you a little background of the first couple chapters of Samuel. Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1, introduces us to a woman named Hannah. A woman named Hannah. And Hannah is heartbroken because her deepest desire is to have a son. See, Hannah is barren at this time. And so she actually goes to the temple where the priest Eli is, and she is sobbing. She is an emotional mess, crying out to God 
from the inner pain inside of her for this desire to have a child. Because if you could have a child in this time, especially a son in this culture, man, it meant everything. It brought value to your life. So she is crying out to God, so much so that the priest Eli looks at her and goes, oh, great, she came to the temple drunk. She is making a mockery of God. She's making a mockery of everything. And so he begins to scold her, and she cries out, and she just lets Eli know, no, 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 I'm not drunk. I just desire so deeply that if God would give me a son, I will give that child back to God. And God hears her prayer. He hears her heart, and he answers, and he blesses Hannah with a son. And she names that son Samuel. And after a few years of spending time with Samuel, she does bring him back to the temple and leaves him in the care of the priest Eli to train and pour into him. Now, she didn't abandon him at the church, but rather she placed him in that care and she would come back and visit and bring gifts and all of these things. They did have this a relationship, but she was true to her word and she gave her child, her son, back to God and left him with Eli. And we see in chapter 2 that Hannah worships God in this beautiful, beautiful prayer, thanking him and raising him on high as a loving, loving God. And at the end of chapter 2, we are introduced to the priest Eli's sons, who also happen to be priests. But the problem with these sons is they are incredibly wicked men. That they have been given this position and this power and influence of others. That people would come to these priests with sacrifices to God. And that these priests would be the mediator between God and mankind for the forgiveness of sin. To have a relationship with God. But instead, these priests abused their power. And they took advantage of other people, especially women. And God looks down and he sees what's happening and he is upset. And so he decides, I'm going to cleanse my priesthood from the family of Eli. I'm going to get rid of this abuse and start over again. And we see in chapter 3, he starts over again with Samuel. So we're going to jump in here. 1 Samuel chapter 3 in verse 1. It says this, it says, Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Remember back to last week with the book of Judges. Rick was showing us that every single person did right in their own eyes. That they got outside the guardrails, that they got outside the parameters that God had given for them, and they did what they wanted to do. And because they had turned their back on God, God has now stepped away and not revealed himself to the people for a long time. God has been ignored, so he's not shown up here much lately. Verses 2 and 3. It says, At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So it says the, the lamp of God, what they would do is in the temple, they would light this lamp when it, the sun would go down, and it would illuminate the temple all through the night and begin to go out when dawn would arrive the next morning. So what it's painting for us is it's telling us this picture of it is the wee hours of the morning. It is still dark out. Samuel and Eli are, are together. Uh, they're both asleep. They're not quite in the same room. They're probably just earshot away from one another. But it's nighttime. They're all resting in the wee hours of the morning here. Uh, verse 4 and 5. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am for you. You called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. 
This is huge. This is huge for a second. See, look, God has shown up to Samuel. God had been absent because the people were doing right in their own eyes, because the people had ignored God, and yet at this moment, God decides to show up, and he calls to young Samuel. And obviously, Samuel is a very obedient young lad because he hears a voice, and naturally, he thinks it's Eli because who else is around? It's just him and Eli, so even though it's early in the morning, he sleepily probably gets up, goes to Eli, and he tells him, hey, what, you needed me, what'd you need? Eli, what's going on? And Eli says, no, I didn't call you, crazy young child. Go back to bed, it's like four in the morning. So he goes back, and verse six happens here, and it says, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call you, my son, Lie down again. Now, parents, do you remember when your kids were little? (laughs) Oh, yeah, right? And you're just trying to sleep. You got work the next morning. You're tired. You're ready to go. And it seems like every 15 minutes, Mom! Dad! Right? And you hear that again and again. So you know how Eli's beginning to feel right here, right? Samuel, you're fine. There's no monster under your bed. Just go lay down. I need to get my sleep. All right, verse 7, and this is incredibly important. Verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. This is incredibly important because this tells us that Samuel knows of God. Samuel doesn't know God. You catch that? Samuel knows of God. Samuel doesn't know God. And this is a kid that has literally been raised in a temple. Like you thought your parents drug you to church a lot when you were a kid. My man was sleeping in the church, okay? He is sacrificing, he is worshiping, and he is serving God next to Eli in the temple every day. I mean, think like preacher's kid to the max right here with young Samuel. And yet, in spite of all of that, Samuel knows of God. He's done the rituals. He's done the sacrifices. He's heard the stories. He knows everything there is to know of God. But he doesn't know God. He doesn't recognize his voice. See, I think back to when I was a kid and Uncle Russell would come to me. I knew all the stories of my Uncle Russell, but I didn't know him. I couldn't hear his voice. I couldn't understand it. We didn't have a great relationship yet. I knew of him, but I didn't know him. Samuel's that same way. He doesn't recognize the voice. He knows of God, but he doesn't know God. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now, first things first. Eli, lock the doors, bro. (laughs) Like at some point in time, if this was like Samuel and Jake, it would be, and Jake arose early in the morning to go to Menards. And he bought a deluxe lock to keep the child away at all times, right? Like, this is why Eli is a much, much better person than I am because Eli recognizes that something's up. Eli recognizes that something's up. Why? Why does Eli know and perceive that God may be calling him? Because Eli knows 
God. Because even though he's not perfect, and we can, we'll see later on, and we've seen earlier, like his sons, the way he raised his family was not good. It wasn't great. But even though he's flawed, even though he's not perfect, Eli knows God. He hears his voice. And he instructs young Samuel. He says, Samuel, look, this is what you do. Go lay down. And if you hear the calling again, I want you to go, listen, and obey. Go, listen, and be ready to obey. What's he doing? What is Eli doing with Samuel right now? He's discipling him. He's discipling young Samuel. See, Eli is inconvenienced right here. Right? Like, there's a lot of times we can talk. There's a lot of conversations we can have. I don't want to have them at four in the morning. Right? Like, this is not a convenient time. He's tired. He's got a whole other day ahead of him. He just got busy working yesterday. This is very inconvenient for Eli. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. Instead, he is guiding Samuel through something that Samuel has never experienced before. He is taking the time to guide Samuel through a new experience. And he's giving a good word that is going to lead Samuel towards God. He's discipling him. Eli is taking the time to disciple young Samuel. Look at verse 10. It says, And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him, that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel hears God's voice for the first time. And that's incredibly exciting for him. I mean, he gets to hear all the stories that he had heard, all the things that he knew. This is God's calling for his life. This is God pouring truth into him, asking him to do something. That is incredibly exciting for Samuel, but it is also really difficult because the task that God has given him, the calling that he has placed for Samuel is a hard task. See, Samuel's mentor, his foster dad, is getting ready to be destroyed, along with his entire family for their rebellion against God. And it's Samuel's job to tell him that. That is not a comfortable conversation to have. I mean, if there's ever a time that God tells you something and you want to be like, hey, I've been having phone trouble lately. Like, I'm going to talk to Verizon. I'm thinking about getting a new phone, but I didn't quite get that message. Let's talk later maybe in the morning, like all these things. Like there are a ton of things I'm sure Samuel felt and wanted to do at this moment. There are so many things going through his mind. He has this choice where realistically Samuel is dependent on Eli. He's risking losing everything. What if Eli doesn't like it? What if Eli gets mad? Is he going to throw me out? Is he going to punish me? Am I going to get in trouble for this? He's in risking everything. Or he can choose to trust 
and obey God. Samuel has this choice. Look here at verse 15. It says, Samuel lay until morning. I'm assuming he got zero sleep at this point in time. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Okay. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Samuel gives the hard truth, probably unsure of what it means for him. Samuel chose in that moment to trust and obey. And as incredible as that is for Samuel, I think what blows me away even more is how my man Eli responds. Eli understands and accepts. Man, the amount of character, the amount of faith, the amount of reverence for God Eli had to have here. And yet in this moment, even though he's got terrible news, even though he knows it's getting bad for him, Eli makes the choice to still disciple Samuel. Eli recognizes that there's going to be times in Samuel's life where he's going to get bad news, where things are going to get tough, where life is going to hit him. And he is still showing young Samuel how to respond. He is showing Samuel that God is in control, that God is sovereign, even when we don't like it, even when it's tough. See, this leads us to two questions. Number one, how do we hear God's calling? How do we hear God's calling? And the answer is simply this. It's to spend time together. Spend time together. I, I get this from students all the time. About the time that graduation kicks over, like we're in the new year, students getting ready to graduate, I hear this question. Hey, what am I supposed to do with my life? Like, how do I know what God wants me to do? Do I go to school? Do I start working? What campus do I go to? And I tell all of them the same thing. Here's the key. God has hidden himself like an Easter egg on one college campus, and it's your job to look through all the bushes on that campus to find him. No. No, that's not what God's doing. I tell them, look, God is, God is in everywhere. And he's got something special for you. He's got something he wants you to do. He's not hiding on campus. If he was, it'd be in Columbus, Ohio. But he's not just hiding there. God has got something for you. And you want to know what God wants you to do? Man, you got to spend time with him. You got to hear him. You got to talk to him. You got to be in his word. It's the whole reason we're doing this study is because we know that if you are in the word of God, he's going to speak to you. He's going to give you something. He's going to tell you something that's going to change not just your life, but the life of those around you. You got to be in his word. And you got to have an Eli in your life as well. you got to have a disciple-making friendship. you got to have somebody that's going to pour into you, that's going to encourage you when those tough times come. And somebody that is going to lovingly be honest with you when you're messing up. And this is why we love life groups. This is why we unapologetically love life groups. Because we know we need disciple-making friendships. Now, when I'm going through a tough time, man, I, I text my life group. Guys, there is a big issue coming up here soon. I have no idea how it's going to go down. I, I just need prayer. 
man, I know I got tons of people praying over me. Or when something happens and it's an incredible thing and I want to celebrate, I'm texting my life people. We're getting cake on Monday, woo, right? And we celebrate these things together. And when I'm messing up, I know they can call me at any time. And they'll be honest with me. And it may hurt, but it's because they love me. Man, you got to be in the word you got to have disciple-making friendships. you got to spend time with God. Even Jesus, when he was here on earth, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, you will see time and time again that even though Jesus has the most important mission in the entire world, even though there are crowds of people coming to see him, even though he's got 12 close guys that he needs to pour and invest to, Jesus took time to step away and spend time with God. That time and time again in the Gospels, we see that Jesus retreated to spend time with the Father. Because Jesus recognized he needed to spend time with God to hear his voice. So how do you hear God's calling? You spend time together. And then the second question is, how do you respond to God's calling? How do you respond to God's calling? And there's really only one right way. And that's to trust and obey. That's to trust and obey. And the reality is, it's it's not always going to be easy. There's going to be some tough times where God asks you to do something, and it is incredibly uncomfortable. And it's going to take faith in something that you're really not sure about. And it might be something hard, and it may require you to sacrifice something or to give something up or to give something away for what God is asking you to do. But when we trust and obey then we get to see the way that God is working through us. When we trust and obey, then God can do incredible things through us. Look at verse 19 and 20. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, a God that had withdrawn a God that had been distant, that people hadn't heard from in a long time, revealed himself in return because Samuel listened and obeyed. The entire nation was affected by Samuel recognizing and obeying the call that God had placed in his life. When God gave Samuel this calling and Samuel was obedient, God knew he could trust Samuel with more. God knew he could give more to do. So the questions are simply this. How are you going to hear? And what will you do? See, my relationship with my Uncle Russ is great. And it's great because it's my relationship. I needed an interpreter for a while. I needed my dad to come along and help me to understand. Just like we need these disciple-making relationships in our lives. But once I got to spend time with my uncle eating that disgusting licorice. Man, I grew to love him. And I can call him at any time, and I know he's going to be so funny, and he's going to be so encouraging, and he's going to be so positive, and he's going to care about me so much. And I have that relationship with him because I spent time with him. Are you spending time with God? Are you tasting his word? Are you responding with trust and obedience? See, we're in the middle of, of a vision of impacting 50,000 people in five years with the grace of Jesus. 
And when I say we, I'm not just talking church staff. I'm talking about church, us, all of us together. And the only way that we can accomplish that vision is if all of us are hearing and responding to the calling that God has placed on our lives. My calling is going to be drastically different than yours, I'm sure. And God is asking you to do things that I can't do. He's asking you to reach out to people that I can't reach. The question is, are you spending time with him so that you hear the calling? Are you willing to be interrupted at four in the morning to pour into somebody else? Are you trusting? Are you obeying this time? God wants to use you to change the lives of people around you. But are we listening? Let's pray. Father God, you are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You are God on high. And God, we are incredibly humbled to know that the thing that you desire most of all is us. God, I pray that we would have the obedience like your servant Samuel, Lord. That when you call, Father, we would hear, we would listen, willing, ready, and obedient, Father, to what it is. No matter how difficult, no matter how long, no matter how scary, no matter how unknown. God, to know that you have placed a calling in our life, Father, to grow us and to love others. God, may we listen well. And may we be incredibly obedient to what you've called for us. We love you, Father, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.